0: Good morning, good morning. Welcome to Ethos. My name's Dave. If if you're new, we're so honored that you're with us this morning. If you are a regular, it's great to see you as always. I want to invite you to get out your Bibles if you have a Bible. We're going to look at uh, lots of different passages of Scripture this morning, but Luke chapter 4 is going to be sort of our anchor point. We'll jump off from John chapter 10 here in just a few moments, but Luke chapter 4 is going to be sort of the the place where we're gonna dig in this morning you can go ahead and turn there as you're turning there I just want to put something on your radar we've mentioned this the last couple of weeks but the first week of November we take the first week of November every year as a church family uh, to celebrate our church's birthday together and uh, unlike maybe your birthday where it's a day that's all about you every year our birthday as a church family is a reminder that this is not about us and so we we work to give this week away to give this day away and so we do that in a variety of ways. We, we do that with three days of prayer and fasting that we'll use to kick off that week of celebration. So November 1st through 3rd will be three days of prayer and fasting. And then we'll have a night of prayer and worship and baptism on Sunday or Wednesday, November 2nd here uh, in this space at Marathon. And then on Sunday, November 6th, we're gonna come together and uh, we'll celebrate, we'll worship, we'll take up a huge offering, and 100% of that will go away uh, to mission work uh, in different parts of the world. We'll use a big part of that to send Aaron and Amy and their family out uh, to start this new work in the Middle East, which will be a great kind of sending moment. We're going to use it to bless international pastors and leaders right here in the city through a number of ways. So it's going to be a really incredible week of celebration. Uh, today on the way out, you're going to see a couple of, get a couple of things. One will be this handout, and in this will really be everything you need to know about that week of celebration. What's happening, uh, we have our three-day uh, devotional guide that will lead us through our time of prayer and fasting. In the back of it, we'll, we have information about the special offering uh, that we're gonna take up that day. And so everything you need to know is in this. So on the way out today, make sure you grab one of, the, one of those. And if you're interested in being baptized, in your seat or near your seat or under your seat is one of these baptism cards. I wanna encourage you to grab that today, fill it out, drop it in one of the white give mailboxes located around the room, Or you can go online to ethoschurch.org forward slash baptism, fill that out, and that's kind of all the stuff you need to know. So I know that's a lot. It's going to be a huge week of celebrating. Can't wait to be a part of that together. Um, Let's pray together as we get ready to jump in to the Word. One of the tensions that I've felt over the last couple of weeks as we've jumped into this new series is, is every Sunday, I wish we had more than 30 minutes to talk about what we're talking about. I wish this was more like one of our grow class formats where we had a couple of hours where we could dig in. And, and go through every single detail. Our desire in these times together on Sunday mornings is to start the conversation, not finish the conversation and give you all that you need. And so uh, my encouragement for you this morning, even as you go through, to be an active listener in anywhere where the Spirit of God is grabbing a hold of your heart or you have questions, that's, that's an invitation from the Lord to dig in personally there, um, to keep digging in this week to see what he might have for you. So let me pray for us. Uh, we'll jump in uh, to the word this morning. Father, Thank you so much just for the gift of a beautiful Sunday, of of getting to be together, uh, of getting to open your word, and not just have your word, but Lord, to have your presence here among us, to have your spirit inside of us. Lord, in the name of Jesus, I just ask that you would protect us from any... Attack of the enemy this morning, any way that he would want to come in and to divide our hearts, our attention, to deceive us or distract us. And God, would you open us up this morning to um, whatever it is that you want to do. I just think about some of those prophetic words that were shared this morning uh, that Aaron talked about at the very beginning, that God, you'd meet us communally, but you'd also speak to us individually. And that God, you'd, you'd set us free Uh, to walk in in authority and joy and power in your kingdom. It's in your name that I pray and give thanks, and together we say, amen, amen. Uh, Several years ago, one of my my friends introduced me to this amazing family, you know, on the surface, just kind of this ordinary family. They were born and raised in Nashville, which is kind of hard to find, like a family born and raised in Nashville anymore, but they they had grown up in Nashville, and about 15 years ago, this, this husband and wife and their daughters, they felt this just stirring from the Spirit of God to sell all of their things and to move over to Eastern Europe where they would give at least five or six years working to free women and children that were caught in sex trafficking and drug trafficking over there in Eastern Europe. they had heard about what was going on in these areas of darkness. Their heart was stirred by it. They had no idea what to do, but as they kept praying... They sensed that the spirit of God was joining them to, to fight in this this battle against darkness, and so they packed up and they moved over to eastern europe and For the first five or six years that they were there, they had this unbelievable experience and i 'm sitting there there with them in this coffee shop in twelve south after they'd come back from their time overseas and they 're describing those first five or six years and they're describing the, these moments of great pressure but great breakthrough, seeing light and dark collide as they were using their, their lives by the power of the Holy Spirit to be a part of something really great. And so they're telling this story, I'm like, okay, so what is it that kind of brought you back? You're like out there on the front lines living into some of these things. And they said, well, about a month and a half ago, we were sitting at our, our, our dining room table. We were having dinner, and as we are sitting there eating with our daughters, there was this really forceful knock on the door. And I don't know if you ever had one of these moments where there's like a really forceful knock on your door, or when you get company or a phone call that you weren't expecting. They said there was this forceful knock on our door that we did not see coming. It startled us. So the husband got up and he went over to the door and he he looked through the little peephole and there's a couple of police officers that were dressed in SWAT gear. And you know I don't know about you, but that's not a normal Tuesday night, you know. And so they they showed up and he's like, man, what do I do? And he's all of a sudden startled and scared, but decides to open the door kind of gently. And they said, hey. You don't know us, but we're for you. We are we're the good guys here, and we've gotta tell you about something that's happening. And so, very cautiously, he let these officers into his house, and they began to explain that over the last five or six years, this family, in the midst of their mission work, they had been pushing back darkness, working with women and children caught in this human trafficking ring, working uh, with people that had been caught in this drug trafficking ring, and he said, these officers said, whether you knew it or not, You are stepping on enemy territory and in our surveillance of these bad guys over the last couple of weeks, we've learned that there is an assignment out against your life and your children and we believe, we have reason to believe in the next couple of days they're coming to kill you. And I was like, man, what a moment. I said, so what'd you, what'd you do? And he said, well, first, he said, we just sat down and we were stunned. And he said, there were these two dominant feelings that began to just come up in our hearts. He said, the first one is exactly what you'd expect. He said, I was just overwhelmed with fear and terror. He said, I, I had no idea. He said, this, this bubble of uh he said this bubble of my ignorance had been burst all of a sudden I recognized there was this evil assignment against our family and he goes I was terrified I was scared of what was going to happen to my kids I was scared of what was going to happen to my life he said I was scared of what was going to happen to me he said but he said after I got my feet under me he said that that fear began to go down just a little bit and he said gratitude began to overtake it which was not the second emotion that I expected him to share I said, gratitude? I said, why was it gratitude that began to overtake you? And he said, because all of a sudden, he goes, now that we were aware of the enemy's tactics, we did not have to sit there as helpless victims. He said, we could actually get out of it. And although the awareness brought fear, he goes, the the awareness actually brought gratitude because the awareness was going to lead us to freedom. And I was thinking about that conversation this week as he told the story about how they got out of the country under the cover of night, and here they were processing it all. I thought about what we've been in over the last couple of weeks as a church family. If you're just joining us, we've been in this teaching series called The Unseen, and every week we're just talking about this reality that right here, right now, in the midst of your ordinary life, amidst all the stuff that you can feel and see and touch, there's an unseen world at work. There are spiritual powers, principalities, and beings that are at work in your life. And I don't don't know what this conversation has done in you or to you, but over the last couple of weeks, I've had a number of people go, hey, the more we talk about this, it's stirring up a little bit of fear. And to quote my dear friend, Jim Barnett, who's part of our church family and one of our leaders, uh, I just want to be very clear. The goal of these conversations is not to make you scared. What we want to happen is as you grow in awareness of the enemy and his schemes, simultaneously, you're growing in awe and trust for Jesus, his leadership, and his wisdom. Because the goal is not just to know what's out there, it's to know how to walk in kingdom victory. And that's where we're going to spend the next four weeks. But this morning in particular, you know, we started two weeks ago with, hey, you were born in a battle, whether you know it or not. And Jesus is the ultimate expert leader and guide through that battle. And then last week we talked about the powers and principalities that are at work in this battle out of Psalm Psalm 82. And this morning, we're just going to go, hey, what is the spiritual strategy or assignment that has been set against you as a human being and set against you as a child of God, whether you recognize it or not? What is the strategy? And in the name of Jesus and by the blood of Jesus, how do you begin to walk in freedom and authority? And so I want to start with the the scripture that Jonathan just read a few moments ago out of John chapter 10. Uh, I love this moment, John chapter 10, because you get these two Pictures, these two agendas that are at work in your life, whether you know it or not. You know, every year when we get to an election season, you start hearing all of this language about battleground states. And if you know anything about battleground states in the midst of election years, there's a disproportionate amount of time, energy, and attention that's focused on a few small states because if you win those states, you win the election, right? And there's this moment in John chapter 10 where Jesus is going to say, hey, whether you know this or not, the human heart is a battleground state. It is a prized possession. And there there is this disproportionate amount of time, energy, and focus on the human heart. And there's two competing agendas. Look at John chapter 10. It'll be on the screen if you don't have it. It says, the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I've come that you may have what? Shout it out. That you may have life and have it to the what? What? Jesus says, here is the battle. Your heart is the battleground state. Here's the two competing agendas. The enemy has come to kill, to steal, to destroy. The devil has come to pillage your life, to take your heart, to take your joy, to steal your purpose. The enemy has come with with one agenda, to kill, to steal, to destroy. Jesus has come with a competing agenda, that is to give you life to the fullest. And Jesus says, if you do not understand that your heart, the human heart, sits at the crossroads of those competing agendas, you will never understand why there's so much firepower directed your way. Have you ever noticed that the more often you try to give yourself wholeheartedly to the things of God, it seems like all hell breaks loose in your real life. You go, why is that? Why is it that the more you try to walk in the ways of King Jesus, the more there seems to be this Resistance against you because your heart is a battleground state and it sits at the intersection of two competing agendas. One agenda that wants to kill, to steal, destroy, the other that wants to give life and life to the fullest. And if you keep reading through John chapter 10, I love it. Jesus is going to say, He goes, Your enemy who's come to do these things, um, he's come with this agenda. He goes, But I'm a good shepherd. I'm a good shepherd. And he talks about what it means to live life under the Good Shepherd. Jump down to John chapter 10, verse 27. I'll just read this real quickly. Jesus, in that same conversation, he says, My sheep, listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. I love that promise from Jesus. Because my father has given them to me and he is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of my father's hand either. I and the father in one. And so Jesus in John chapter 10, he said, hey, whether you are aware of this or not, maybe you're just sitting at the dining room table, eating a Tuesday night dinner. There's a knock on the door and the knock on the door says, hey, do you know there's an agenda for your life? And all of a sudden that, bur- that bubble of ignorance has been burst and you recognize the enemy is toying and pulling on your heart. And Jesus says, hey, as you're aware of it, He's come to kill, steal, destroy. I've come to give life, life to the full. And he goes, but let me give you some confidence. He goes, if you would listen to my voice, and if you would follow me, you will sit secure in my hand. And if you don't hear me say anything else this morning, as we begin to talk about the enemy strategies, for every follower of Jesus that learns to listen to the voice of Jesus, sit secure in Jesus, you have nothing to fear. But, it will empower you to be aware. Because every week I'm running into followers of Jesus who are going, man, there is so much resistance and what have I done wrong, what have I done wrong? And I go, you are breathing and your heart is a battleground state and you have to understand what's at play. And so he said this a few weeks ago when we talked about the battle that you're born in is that Jesus is the authority on the unseen world so I can't imagine a better way uh, to start then just by really looking at the way that our enemy comes against Jesus. And here's what I want to say this morning is this in no way is an all-encompassing conversation on the strategies of the enemy. In no way are we going to cover all of it this morning. But what I do want to do is I want you to notice five really subtle strategies that the enemy keeps deploying over and over and over towards God and his children. So that way you can be aware, you can name them, and you can resist them when they come. So Luke chapter 4, this is where we're going to go this morning. Luke chapter 4, Jesus is about 30 years old. He's just started his earthly ministry, just been baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit. God has declared from heaven, this is my son whom I love with him. I'm well pleased. And we're going to pick up in Luke chapter 4. I think I've taught this passage like 50 times over the last 10 years. It's so important. Listen to this. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, He left the Jordan River and was led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. And then the devil said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, that's a key moment. We're going to come back to that over and over and over. He said, If you are the Son of God, then tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. So the devil led Jesus up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and their splendor. It's been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Just a a quick footnote here. Just because the devil says it doesn't mean it's true. Can we just shake our heads if we understand this? The the devil's going to say a lot here in this passage where it's like, oh, it's weird that he has the ability to do that. Spoiler alert, he does not. (laughs) But he's never been prone to telling the truth. Verse 9. So the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. He said, if you are the son of God, then throw yourself down from here, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And then Jesus answered, it said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Verse 13, and when the devil had finished all of his tempting, he left Jesus until another opportune time. This is the word of the Lord out of Luke chapter four. So um, real briefly this morning, I wish we had an hour and a half to do this, but I I wanna talk about just five really simple strategies and just the audacity of the enemy to come against Jesus, the Son of God, filled with the Spirit of God, sent to inaugurate the kingdom of God. If he would come in audacity against Jesus, don't you think he'd come against us? And so just very, very simply, I just want you to notice some of these strategies. And the first strategy is this, is that our enemy... Our enemy so often seeks to um, come against the word of God. He, he seeks to discredit God's word in our life. This is the starting place for so much spiritual attack, whether you recognize it or not, is that the enemy wants to come to discredit the word of God. So if you were to go back and read Luke chapter 3, Jesus is baptized In that moment, it says the Holy Spirit descends on him and this audible voice from heaven comes and do you remember what the audible voice from heaven says? He says, this is my what? Somebody shouted out. This is my, this is my son whom I love and I'm well pleased, this declaration from heaven. That was the word of God over Jesus's life and then Jesus is led by the spirit into Luke, uh, into into the desert in Luke chapter four and what's the very first thing that the devil says to Jesus? Look back at verse three. The devil said to him, shout out this word, the devil said to him, if, if you are the son of God, I want you to notice this, seems so subtle, so sneaky, the devil doesn't come towards Jesus with this outright assault on his theology, He doesn't come with this like full frontal attack. He doesn't show up and say, hey Jesus, you can't trust the Torah, you can't trust the the scriptures. He shows up and he goes, I just want to gently question what it is that your father just declared. And this is the place where almost all spiritual attack begins with just this subtle questioning, this subtle attempt to discredit the word of God. This is what happened in the desert with Jesus. This is what happened in the garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Look at Genesis chapter three with me, verse one. It'll be up on the screen. It says, now the serpent or the devil was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. So he said to the woman, did God really say? I want you to notice where where the attack begins. Just this simple, hey, hey, did God really say? Are you sure about that? And then she begins to respond. She begins to try to reason with the devil, which for a record is not a great thing to do. She said, you must not, uh, 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 he said, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? And the woman replied, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say that we must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and we must not touch it or you will die. And so now she's not only reasoning, trying to reason with the devil, she's now misquoting what it is that God had said. Verse four, now the devil turns up the attack on God's word. He says, you will not certainly die. He says, you won't die. And guys, I want you to just notice, this is the way that so often spiritual attack begins. It begins with this subtle attempt to just discredit what it is that God has clearly and boldly declared over your life. Now, let's try to bring this down to the ground, to your real life, because the reality is sometimes this feels so abstract. It's like, how's this happen in your real life? And we could look at all of these moments in culture right now where there's an attack on God's word. And We could hold that up, but I want to just go with something really subtle. This happened in our family this week. Really simple. So on Monday nights, I do this uh, discipleship group with my sons. We call it TGIM. Thank goodness it's Monday. And uh, we go out and uh, just try to rebrand the worst day of the week, you know. And so we'll go out and uh, eat chips and salsa, and we'll talk about Jesus, and we'll think about, you know, what it is that he's calling us to do. And so this past Monday, I'm sitting there with my sons, and uh, we're, we're breaking chips and salsa and, and partaking in um, the joy of that meal. And as we're there, I'm just like, hey, what, tell me about your school week. What's been going on? And one of my sons makes this really simple statement that caught my attention. He said, hey, the other day we were at lunch. I was eating with my friends, and we were talking about this thing. And he said, and in the midst of it, one of my friends just said, he goes, I don't know that God would really do that. And then we started talking back and forth about, yeah, would God really do that? Would God really do that? And, and then one of the, uh, uh, the, the other kids in the group said, yeah, that just doesn't feel right to me. And so I asked my son, I said, I said what would you think? And he goes, yeah, just, that doesn't really feel like God to me. And I said, okay. I said, guys, get out your Bible. So we're right there. We, we open up the scriptures, and we just go one after another, just looking at scripture. And I go, for just a second, let's just put your feelings aside and just ask the question, regardless of what you feel, what has God boldly declared? And we're just going through the scriptures, and I, I said, okay, what do you see? And my son, who had brought it up, he goes, he goes, Well, I guess God is pretty clear about that. And I just want you to notice what happened. This sounds so subtle. Great group of kids, I love those kids, at a Christian school at lunch, talking about Jesus. I never did that as a kid. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, who are these kids? What an amazing scenario. It's not like they were there like worshiping the devil, like they were there in the midst of a Christian environment talking about Jesus and what happened in the midst of it. There was this subtle attempt to discredit the word of God. I remember a few weeks ago, I'm not talking about this kid. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against what? Spiritual powers and principalities uh, of this world. And here's the reality. I want you to notice this. Here's the way the enemy loves to come at you. In our culture, he wants to say, your feelings are God, and God's word must submit to your feelings. That's the subtle reality. And he comes in and just wants to go, hey, let's, let's just reorder this. How do you feel? How do you feel? As though a group of 10-year-olds could understand the world. <laughs> As though a 40-year-old or a 50-year-old or a 60-year-old, it's like, and this is the way the enemy comes. He just comes. Now, now how did that happen In the context of my son's lunch at school. Well, here's what I understand is that our boys were not born in a world that is neutral. They were born in the midst of a battle. And they have an enemy. And his agenda is to kill, to steal, and to what? And he does that by trying to discredit God's promises and his word in our life. And all he has to do is sometimes ask a few simple questions. And if our tendency is to turn to our feelings as opposed to his word, he has us where he wants us. Does that make sense? And We could just stop right there. <laughs> and I could go, hey, have any of you felt this week any moments where you've been tempted to understand the world through the filter of your feelings as opposed to the lens of God's word and his promises? It's one of the ways that the enemy works. He tries to discredit God's word. I'll just give you a second strategy. It's not just about discrediting his word. It's about trying to defame God's character. Because it's never just about getting you to doubt God's word. Ultimately, at the end of the day, he's trying to get you to, in your heart, really wrestle with, does God really see you? Does he really love you? Does he really know you? Is he really out for your good? You know, Luke chapter 4, verse 3, he says, hey, if you are the son, in other words, what he's coming at there is, hey, that might not be true. And if his word is not true, here's how he's defaming God's character, then that means God's a liar. And if you can't trust him as he speaks to you as his child, can you really trust him when he talks to you about good and evil, right and wrong, about the future, about the present? Can you trust him? So what happened in Genesis chapter three. Right after that conversation we just read, you get to Genesis chapter three, verse five. And he goes on a little further. He says, you won't certainly die. And then in verse 5, do you remember what he says? He goes, because God knows. God's holding something back from you. And here's what I want you to see as the enemy, strategy number one, tries to discredit God's word. Number two, he tries to defame his character. What he's doing is he's trying to breach the trust in your heart between you and your heavenly father. And he's gonna do this, he's gonna to try to do this whether you are in the Garden of Eden or you're in the desert. So I want you to see the way that he tries to defame the character of God when your life is good. When, when life is sweet, when the job is working and the relationships are working and everything is up, up and to the right, the way that the enemy typically tries to defame the character of God is he comes against you like he did with Adam and Eve and he tries to sow a seed of discontentment. He tries to sow something really gentle into your heart. You okay, William? He tries to put something really subtle into your heart and to just go, man, there, there's more. There's, there, there's more out there. God's withholding pleasure. Have you ever had that feeling before? Something's really good. Life's going really good. And then there's just that little thing in you that goes, man, I think there's just a little bit more. One of my friends the other day, I heard him ask this question. I thought it was so good. He said, how much money is enough money? Well, that's a great question. I'm like, how would you answer that? And he goes, more than I have. (laughs) (laughs) And isn't that always the answer? Like, how much money is enough money? Well, just a little bit more than that. That's what happens when life is good. When you're in the garden of Eden, when you're in the garden of pleasure, there's this sense the enemy comes to you and he goes, hey, I think God's holding back. God's holding out on you. There's more out there. When you're in the desert and life is not working, when the marriage is not working, when the job is not working, when the friendships aren't working, when things aren't working, he doesn't come at you with this lie that, that God is withholding good stuff. He, he comes at you and he says, hey, God's turned his back on you. Doesn't see you, doesn't love you, doesn't believe you, you're too far gone. Like you haven't done what it takes. He can't protect you. In either way, it is an assault on God's character. And the devil doesn't care if you're in a good season or a hard season. He just cares about your heart and he wants to come after you. And he's going to do that by trying to discredit the word of God. He's going to try to do that by trying to defame God's character as a loving father who sees you, knows you, loves you. And he'll do whatever it takes uh, to come against you. Third strategy uh, that you see here in Luke chapter 4 is not just discrediting God's word or trying to defame God's character. he He wants to deter you from walking into God's plans. He wants to, to deter you from walking into the path that God has for you. Look at Luke chapter 4, verse 9. You know, God had said to Jesus, Hey, uh, I'm going to exalt you. You're going to have the name above every name. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. But your exaltation, your glory, is going to come after your suffering. So the, the plan that I have for you is suffering before glory. And I want you to notice that the devil says, Hey, I just want to deter you from the plan that God has for you. Verse 9 the devil led Jesus to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And he said, If you are the Son of God, then throw yourself down from here, for it's written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you carefully, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And so now the devil begins to quote the scriptures to Jesus, but he's trying to deceive Jesus in this. He's trying to get Jesus to take a different path. And here's essentially what the devil is saying, is Jesus, you can have the glory without subscribing to God's plans. Hey, you can have the notoriety. You can have the breakthrough. You can have the joy. You can have the pleasure without doing things the way that God's told you to do them. And you see this strategy at work. All the time. Where the devil goes, hey, you can have the intimacy, the joy, and the pleasure of sex without all the hard stuff of commitment for life and sacrifice and service between one man and one woman in covenant marriage before the Lord forever. He goes, you can have all the glory without any of the hard stuff. And all the time, the enemy is just going to come to you and he's going to say, hey, you want the glory? You don't have to do it God's way. It's a simple, subversive lie. Or another way, i just give you another way that he tries to divert us from God's path. We go, man, I like that John 10, 10 verse, life and life to the full. I want life to the full. And the enemy will go, hey, you can have life to the full, but instead of taking Jesus's path of surrendering your life picking up your cross walking in obedience you can have life to the full by just chasing all of the temporary pleasures of the day and over and over and over the enemy's just going to come and say hey you can have the outcome without walking in the plans of God you see over and over and over strategy number one comes against his word. Strategy number two, he comes against his character. Strategy number three, he comes against his plan. Strategy number four, it's all about deceiving God's kids. He always seeks to deceive his kids. And if you've been around Ethos for any amount of time, you've heard me say this, Tom, blue in the face. The the enemy is not just out to get you to do bad things. Ultimately, he wants you to forget who you are. And there's a big difference between simply doing bad things and at the end of the day, forgetting who you are. (laughs) In verse 3 and verse 9 of chapter 4, he keeps coming at Jesus, if you are the Son, if you are the Son, if you are the Son. At the end of the day, he knew that if he could cause Jesus to somehow dislodge his identity from being the Messiah, the Son of God, the Anointed One, the one that was sent to crush sin, evil, hell, death, to bring in the kingdom of God forever at his return, he knew if he could do that, if he could get Jesus to live in anything less than his identity, he would win. And this is one of the primary strategies strategies of the enemy. He does not want you to actually believe that you're a loved, forgiven, chosen, spirit-empowered son or daughter of the king. He would much rather you believe that you're a struggling person doing your best to get through life hoping that God will bail you out in the end. He does not want you walking in the authority of who you actually are, the place where heaven and earth collide by the power of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't want you walking walk in that identity. And so he comes at us to deceive. That's not, that's not who you are. Don't you remember what happened to you when you were a kid? That's not who you are. Don't you remember that abuse? Don't you remember what you did? Don't you remember that struggle? Don't you remember that? Adi- Don't you remember? You can be forgiven, but you can't be free. You can be forgiven, but you can't be used. The enemy comes, and he does not want you to know who you are in Christ. And so his tactic is just to deceive. And man, we could, we could do a whole sermon series on this. I just think about three really practical lies that come against our culture all the time. I just see the enemy's fingerprints all over these three lies. He'll say, hey, you're not really a child of God. Instead, your identity is based on what you have, what you do, or what others think of you. You are what you have. You are what you do. You are what others think of you. And over and over and over, you find yourself standing around friends comparing how successful you are or not. Every party you ever go to, the second question somebody asks you after your name is what? Help me out. What do you do? And every night when you're laying in bed alone, looking at that glowing screen, wondering why nobody is liking all of the stuff that you're posting, and you feel inside, like, what do people really think? It's like, guys, these are just lies from the enemy. Designed to kill, to steal, to destroy, to keep you from walking as a son or daughter of the most high God with a spiritual inheritance put on earth to push back darkness. Comes against his word. He comes against God's character. He comes against God's plans. He comes against God's kids by trying to deceive them. I'll just give you one last one. He looks for an opportune time to destroy us. The devil is an opportunist. He looks for those moments. And I want you to see right here in Luke chapter 4, look at verse 13. I want you to notice that the assault is not always ongoing. It's not always even. It says, when the devil had finished all of his tempting, he left Jesus until what? Until an opportune time. And I go, what was it about this moment in the desert that made it an opportune time for him to come against Jesus? Uh, I want you to just see this. This is so important. If you don't understand when the enemy tries to attack, you will typically be caught off guard when he tries to attack. So I grew up on the, on the coast. I love to surf. And so we knew that there were a couple of times of day when you just had to be on your guard. Like early in the morning when the sun was just coming up, you had to look out for sharks At night, when the sun was going down, you had to look out for sharks. Someone say, just stay out of the water then, but that didn't make sense to us, you know? But you just had to be a little more aware certain times of day. When are the opportune times that the enemy comes against you? When do you have to look out for the sharks? I would reason that there's two, at least two big ones that you see here in Luke chapter four. The first one is this. When you've made a big spiritual commitment, so when you're spiritually strong, number one, Number two, when you're physically depleted. When you're spiritually strong and when you're physically depleted. Have you ever noticed that when you seek to give your whole heart to Jesus, so many other things in your life all of a sudden seem as though they're falling apart. It's because you have made a spiritual commitment. You have, you've decided, hey, I'm going to surrender my life to Jesus. I'm going to confess that sin. I'm going to be baptized. I'm going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to walk in obedience. I'm going to lead my family. I'm going to quit living in sin. Whatever the thing is, there's something about those moments when you make the decision to walk with Jesus that all of a sudden puts a target on your back. And Jesus, here he's just been baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit, commissioned into ministry. Goes into the desert, 40 days of prayer and fasting. I don't know if you get more spiritually committed than Jesus was in this moment. And the enemy comes against him. And so I just want to say hey, can we just make a commitment with each other that we won't be surprised when the enemy comes against us in our moments of spiritual commitment? But it's not just spiritual commitment, it's also he was physically depleted. He was hungry. He was tired. He was alone. I'm convinced that so often the attack of the enemy against God's word and his plans and his character and his children comes in moments that if our eyes were open, we could expect it. I think about our friends that were in Eastern Europe pushing back darkness, even though they did not expect the knock on the door that night, there was something in them that probably should have expected that when you push into darkness, darkness tries to push back. But there's this moment. And I believe the enemy looks for opportune times. And sometimes it's a moment where you've gone all in with Jesus and sometimes it's a really painful moment in your life. The number of times I sit down at a coffee table and somebody's struggling with sin or addiction and I just ask a simple question. When's the first time you remember struggling with that sin? And they almost always go back to this, this moment in their life, a broken relationship, a moment of abuse. Abuse. A moment where some substance or thing was entered into their story that they didn't understand or they didn't recognize as a kid. And I'll say any of these things lightly. We'll talk about a lot of these next week. But I believe there are these moments where the enemy looks at our lives and he sees that we're either spiritually committed or we are physically depleted. And he goes, now is the opportunity to war for the battleground state of the heart. And I go, if he had the audacity to come at Jesus like this, I don't think it's too brazen to think he might come for us at times. I remember years ago, one of my friends, uh, Shadonke Johnson, he lives in Sierra Leone, West Africa, and just an amazing man of God. He'd come over to visit, and uh, I was asking him, I said, hey, when you look at the American church, what are some of the blind spots that you think we might not see simply because we're so used to the context we're in? And I'll never forget this. He said, I think a lot of times because of the comfort and the security that you think you have as Americans, he said, a lot of times you are blind to the fact that you're in a battle, you're blind to the fact that you have a very real enemy, and most of you are blind to the fact that the enemy comes at you with these really subtle strategies through other people that you don't even notice, and so you just let it into your heart without even resisting. And he said, if you don't know you're in a battle, and if you don't know your enemy, and if you don't know your strategy, he goes, you are bound to become a prisoner of war. I thought, man, so true. And I go, but in all of this, here's where I want to end this morning. Why in the world can we have hope? Because, like, if we just stop there, it's like, okay, go take communion. (laughs) The devil's out to get you. Good luck. (laughs) Man, how terrifying would that be? How tough would that be? Like, you'd have one choice or two choices either leave scared or leave in denial. But why do, why do I have so much hope in the face of this unseen reality that we're facing? If you hear nothing else, here's my hope. Jesus wins. <laughs> he wins. He wins. He, he wins. You, you have nothing. You have nothing to fear. Be aware, yes. but fear not. Be aware. but fear not. He wins. He wins. He has stood decisively in the face of the enemy. Colossians chapter two, I'm just gonna read this over us as we get ready for communion, starting in verse six, look at this. It says, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so he's speaking to those of you that are followers of Jesus, and those of you that are not followers of Jesus, you can become a follower of Jesus. Good news, it's not a secret club. We'd love for you to step into Christ. He says, just as you received Christ as Lord, continue to live your lives in him rooted and built up strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world that's what Aaron talked about last week instead of depending on Christ for in Jesus, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you've been brought to all fullness. That's John ten ten. He is the head over every power and over every authority. That's what we talked about last week out of Psalm 82. Jump down to verse 13. And when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave all of our sins. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us, he condemned and condemned us. He has taken it away nailing it to the cross and having disarmed the powers and the authorities. He's talking about the spiritual powers and authorities, having disarmed them, he made a public spectacle of them by triumphing over them by the what shouted out by the, the by the cross. By the cross. It was like that moment in World War II, June 6th on the beaches of Normandy, the allied forces broke through. And was the war over on D-Day? Absolutely not. But that was a decisive battle that turned the tide of the war. And on the cross and in the resurrection and the empty tomb, I'm just telling you, The war is not over, but it was the decisive battle that broke through the lines, that disarmed the powers and the principalities, which means that you get to live with authority and life and joy. It means you can experience Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He leads me beside still waters. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He guides my feet in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And then I love this part. And even when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, You will fear no what? Why? Because your rod and your staff are with me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my what? Enemies are not flesh and blood. In the presence of your enemies, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. The Lord wants to give you a feast. The battle has been won. The war is still raging. King Jesus is returning, and you get to decide which side will you live into. That's the choice. And church, I love you enough to just say, choose wisely and don't walk blindly. Father, I love you and I thank you that you speak to us with such truth and clarity and that in you, Jesus, we have nothing to fear. Lord, would you give us an awareness of the unseen struggle? And would you help our feet to be planted in the victory of Christ? God, this morning, as we, as we come to the table and as we receive the bread and as we receive the cup and as we, as we are reminded that the enemy who came to kill, steal, and destroy, that Jesus, you laid your life down for us so that we don't have to fall victim or prey to his efforts. And this morning, Lord, as we confess sin, as we pray for one another, as we receive the elements, Lord, would there be this strengthening in our bones and the strengthening in our hearts would fear subside, would gratitude rise Would we walk out in authority. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.